Hello and welcome to Splash of Cinema. It is good to be back. I am your host, John. And I'm Pete. Uh, We're happy to have you all back with us. Uh, We've been on a little bit of a hiatus just with classes, senior year, you know, figuring out what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. So we're having an existential uh, dilemma here. Me more than John, because this man's set to become the next uh, Maverick. So uh, we're excited for him. (laughs) I'm pretty locked in, but yeah, it's, you know, it's still scary, like growing up and stuff. We'll see. We'll see. Absolutely. All right. So we just wanted to, uh, we're going to cover some Oscar nominees today uh, from various categories, whether that be acting, production, even we're going to talk about a documentary today as well that we think you all should watch and all readily available. Uh, these movies are on streaming services that most of us have because, uh, you know, cable is dead now. Besides if I want to watch Blades of Glory. Or Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> or Shaw. It's like, yeah, it's like Shawshank Redemption or Will Ferrell movies. And that's about it. Uh, that is on network at the moment. But John, do you want to talk about some news uh, before we get into the movies? Yeah, we can talk about some news. Uh, I don't really have that much to say news wise. There's been some stuff that's been popping off lately, though, like The Last of Us on HBO. Uh-huh. Apparently, it's like the next great HBO show. They keep finding gold. Well, yeah, that I. That IP is also like that game is really phenomenal. It's one of the best video games ever made. So, I mean, they're banking off that. And if you look at a bunch of Instagram accounts and stuff, there's side by sides of, you know, shots from the show as opposed to the video game. And it's it's almost parallel. So uh, it's really exciting. And I need to start watching it. I just haven't had much time lately, but definitely on my watch list. And the episodes are like an hour, 20 minutes long, too, like pretty long episodes. But. Yeah, there's also a couple of really good movies, I think, coming up. This this should be another great year for movies. Specifically Scorsese, I'm excited to see again with Killers of the Flower Moon finally yeah. coming together. And, you know, uh, is it Ari Aster's new film, Bo is Back or something? <laughs> what is it? Bo is Afraid, I think it's called. Yeah, that looks really... I watched the trailer for that and I was, I was really weirded out. Like, that might be weirder than his other two movies, which is really hard to do. But I, I could easily see that being weirder. And, and you know, I think Joaquin is going to have himself a year. Because not only is he in that, but he's also going to be in the Napoleon film coming yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. Who's direct? Is that Ridley Scott, right? I think it is. Yeah. So, you know, he's going to put so much money and so much practicality into that movie to make it accurate. Big fan of Ridley Scott. but Yeah, we love Ridley on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to think of other stuff. Uh, you, season whatever, four came out this weekend uh this past weekend uh weird ass show if you haven't seen it follows dan humphrey from gossip girl penn badgley really weird dude uh in the show and in real life for that matter like his instagram is just videos of him talking it's really odd but aside from that i'm excited to see that show it's just really it's addicting in a way it's just above the level of like cw writers but it's still really bad so it is enticing and you do want to go back to it and you know it's about a murderer which america's obsessed with lately just with all those docs that are dropping on netflix and other streaming services and stuff it's sort of a glorification of it john i wanted to get your take on that actually just because we're seeing a lot of material come out that is you know talking about these serial killers and murders and like how they're sexy and stuff like it's just ridiculous what what are your thoughts on it well this is actually interesting you bring it up pete because in the past couple of weeks, I, as I was editing the old episodes, I, I found part of one of the episodes is a conversation where we're talking about 
someone playing i think it was netflix was coming out with another like dahmer docu- documentary or another like dahmer piece mm-hmm. just because everyone just eats those up and you're like i don't think we should be glorifying those serial killers i mean i prefer it to superhero movies but yeah it's getting to be a bit yeah much. no yeah yeah give me an original story or something that hasn't been told before don't give me like the 10th jeffrey dahmer piece or something like that I don't know. I think it shows that Netflix kind of has a lack of original content when they keep just relying on these like murder documentaries. And it's mostly like these docudramas they do where they're like kind of acted out, kind of real life documentaries. It's like Dateline on a streaming service. It's weird. Exactly. Yeah. It's like just come up with some original stuff. And I've noticed that from Netflix, especially in the, you know, the holiday season and even these past few months, like they haven't put out a lot of original stuff. It's they've just been rehashing old stuff on like their top tens and stuff. And as the leader in streaming, I think it's their due diligence to make original stuff and they have the time and the capabilities to do that. So kind of disappointing for Netflix. But luckily, you have people like, uh, sorry, services like Apple Plus and HBO who are sort of picking up the slack, coming out with some really good stuff. So and and they're yeah, they're being more original. Apple Plus did Blackbird, which I thought was great. I thought it was respectful to the genre. I really liked it. But, you know, it, it just it's kind of like Marvel just continually releasing a bunch of superhero movies. Netflix is kind of having that effect with with these docudramas, specifically with murderers and serial killers. It, it does glorify it to an extent. Even like the stuff they're releasing is not even their own IP. Like they just released White Noise. I don't know if you've seen that yet. I haven't seen it. Bombbox new film. Yeah, it's a, it was a three star movie. Okay, because that's like based off a book, you know, it's like they're not even thinking of this new stuff. And obviously, Bombach has a contract with Netflix where he has to put out, you know, a movie every two years or something along those lines. Uh, So I'm not surprised that came out. But still, it's like I need more originality from them at the moment. But opinions aside, I'm looking forward to uh, they're releasing a if you know the Formula One Drive to Survive show, they're doing that on the PGA Tour. I forget what it's called, but it should be out next week or maybe even it's out now. Uh, but it sort of follows all the golfers, and I'm really into professional golf. Uh, I was actually watching the Waste Management earlier, and I'm just really excited for that show to get into the mind of an athlete, especially an individualized sport like golf. So they're good at that. Like they are good at like the docu dramas. Like I'll give them that, but that's really all they're doing at the moment. But yeah, anything else else news wise or opinions you have, John? I just want to run through some films everyone should keep on their radar without getting getting into them too much. Just stuff that's upcoming in the next year, what I think is going to define this year in cinema. Some things to watch out for, of course. We got Nolan coming out with Oppenheimer. We have the new Mad Max film coming out. We have Shazam coming out. Dune Part 2. Uh, Timothy Chalamet is going to take a turn as Wonka, which is exciting. We have the Joker sequel coming out, also with Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, new Indiana Jones movie. Deadpool 3, Greta Gerwig's Barbie, which is exciting. Of course, now you have the the next couple Avatar movies are going to have delayed releases. I just saw the trailer for Fast and Furious X with Vin Diesel. Let's see if it's Stop. actually the last one. <laughs> I did not know that was a thing. Oh my gosh, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm definitely double featuring Oppenheimer and Barbie. Uh, I'll probably end with Barbie. Keep it on a lighter note. I'm excited for that day because I will be in the theater all day. So, yeah, a lot of good movies coming out. Uh, but I say we get right into it. Again, we're going to be coming covering some nominees uh, today. So our first nominee, this is going to be our hidden gem of the week. It's a 2022 film. Obviously, it's called After Sun. Uh, it's a directorial debut uh, by Charlotte Wells. 
and it stars Frankie Corio and Oscar nominated Paul Mescal, uh, who is in the uh, lead actor category. Really a somber movie. It it sort of masks w- what the purpose of the movie is until you finally get there, and it's it's beautifully shot. Uh, I believe it was shot on film. It looks like a movie out of you know the seventies. Uh, it takes place in what like two thousand three or so. It takes place in like the early two thousands, and that's certainly captured by like the the outfits they wear and stuff. Essentially, it's about this daughter who is trying to piece the life of her father back together and her experiences with him. It's not clear what had happened to him. And I don't want to sort of spoil it because that is sort of the crux of the movie, but it really is a coming of age story. Uh, I thought Frankie Corio did a phenomenal job uh, acting in this. Uh, I think it's interesting too, that Frankie Corio is actually Scottish, but Paul Meskel is Irish and people keep thinking he's, you know, a UK citizen. I saw a tweet that he commented on it was like paul mescal is like the something british person to be nominated and he just commented he like subtweeted he just said i'm irish <laughs> like not even like calling him out like he's very into his irish heritage and if you don't know who he is he he uh gained a claim for normal people on hulu with daisy edgar jones granted i haven't seen that but he was phenomenal in this this was my first paul mescal exposure and I really enjoyed this one. Uh, it's one that sort of touches close to me personally. So it was hard to watch at times for that reason. But again, just I haven't seen a movie that was made like this. Like there's so much patience that was taken with this movie. You feel uncomfortable with certain shots, certain situations, but it's not like an overt uncomfortability. You're you're willing to let the uncomfortability seep into you. Uh, and that's what I really liked about After Sun, a phenomenal directorial debut. Uh, and I think a real dark horse for some categories in the Oscars this year. Yeah, Pete, I mean, you hit it right on the nose. This movie is really fresh to me. I just watched it like an hour ago. Uh, I finished it up. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Paul Meskel, though. I watched Normal People with Daisy Edgar Jones, and perhaps that is the best limited series I've ever seen. Both their acting performances were phenomenal. That That is an Irish limited series, so Paul Meskel, I guess, stayed true to his heritage there. But I, I can't say enough about After Sun. It, it really grows on you. It's it's definitely uncomfortable, and a lot of the scenes, especially the initial scenes, are disorienting. It's it's spliced between kind of the father and daughter on this this Turkish holiday, this trip where it's clear that there's some some deep seated problems with him throughout. But it's also spliced with footage of a club scene that that just is kind of a symbol throughout the film. It comes back every now and then and like raw camera footage that is meant to capture like the footage that uh, the daughter took throughout the trip on her video camera. So that's not very high quality, but, but the point is it's meant to represent kind of a father daughter familial bond. Um, And that camera footage is, is really like the memories she has of him, those core memories that she holds onto throughout her life. And it's very interesting. I mean, it, it explores the relationship between a, a daughter and a father, like at its most simple. And of course, mm-hmm. there's certain things that kids pick up on from their parents and they never might really know who their parent was at the time. It's clear that she only sees glimpses of what's going on in his life. But it's specifically the last third of the film kind of opens a lot of those doors. And yeah, that's where he shines. 
Yeah, one of the I do have to say one of the best endings I think to a movie that I had seen in 2022. Uh, the ending shot is just phenomenal. Sort of encapsulates the whole film uh, from the main character's perspective. Uh, it's cool to get a story told through the eyes of an adolescent too. Like to have that because it, it like that aligns with the filmmaking really well, and Charlotte Wells does that well. Like there's a lot of shaky cam, a lot of disorienting shots, sort of through the mind of Frankie Corio's character, which I thought was really well done. You know, there's not really a score to this movie. It's sort of a bare bones movie at its core. And that's all it needs to be. Uh, and it did the job really well for me. You know, really patient filmmaking. Hopefully we'll cover Tar in our next episode. But like Tar, just really t- took its time to make a beautiful film. And not a long run runtime either. I say take its time. This is like one hour, 40 minutes. But once you watch the movie, you'll be like, oh, this, you know, this is patiently everything is thought out everything is meticulous in this movie and i really grasp that from after some so and wells the director i mean can't say enough about her it's it's her debut i think she's got a bright career ahead of her in interviews and stuff she says there's a lot of uh, cinema throwbacks to some earlier like french cinema from the 90s and stuff and i definitely see perhaps some of her childhood in the film i don't know if it's coming from her own experiences or not, but it's such an intimate kind of raw portrait. There has to, there has to be some lived experience there for because the movie just seems so authentic. Like I forgot I was watching a fictional story at a point, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Like these characters don't exist. Like I was just sympathizing with them so much and getting in, delved into their stories and getting so involved uh, with each character that I just forgot. But back to your point, John. Sorry. Well, yeah, no, uh, I completely agree. It's, you know, the, the relationship between a parent and a child is sometimes you often forget that that your parent, who might be a hero figure, and it's clear that through the daughter's eyes, her father is kind of this perfect human. But throughout, there's reminders that he's a normal human and he's a normal person and he's dealing with things while also trying to put on some sort of front for his daughter. And whatever memories she has of him are are good, but it also shows that maybe her character later on in life realizes that there were some cracks in her personification of him and her vision of him. And Paul Meskel goes a long way in, in carrying out his performance to showcase that. And, and I thought this would get more Oscar nominations. When it came out to like, this came out prime Oscar season, granted it was like very limited and from a directorial debut, but nonetheless, yeah, I am surprised as well. And it's, it's always impressive for a foreign film to get any sort of love outside of the best foreign mm-hmm. film category at the Oscars. This didn't receive the best foreign film nomination. It easily could have, but it got a best actor nomination. Does it correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't have to be foreign language film or no to be nominated. I think that's the globes. I could be wrong. Okay. Yeah. Even though it is, you know, an, an Irish, it's not Irish made. It's Scottish. Uh, I'm pretty sure the director is Scottish. She is. Yeah, like we don't think of that as international, but like obviously that is international. So I, I do wonder the criteria for that with the Academy, because I know for the Globes, like that wouldn't qualify. Yeah, it wouldn't. Because I remember we had this debate uh, a few episodes ago. We we were talking Minari back in 2020, and that was an American film, but it received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. Right. Okay. And so then it wasn't eligible for other categories, which was interesting. Uh-huh. But After Sun is definitely much more of a critic film. It's it's a little more nuanced. It's it's not very exciting by any stretch. And of course, it can resonate with your average film viewer. But 
your average your average person that's going to watch say 20 30 films a year this isn't even going to be on their radar and they're not going to watch it so i think that that's yeah. why we chose it to be a hidden gem oh it's absolutely hidden yeah yeah it's for sure a hidden gem but among critic circles this is viewed as a top 2 top 3 film in 2022 and if you open yourself up to it and really try to appreciate the filmmaking and the the themes the story that it's telling it's it's clear that it is you just have to break down you have to be ready not to see really any excitement and and you have to kind of put yourself in a space where you can feel your own memories associated with it because everyone can take something away from this everyone can see a little bit of Paul Meskel's character in their own parents and i think that's super unique and that's what makes it kind of real and raw yeah, you do need a little bit of vulnerability going into this movie uh, to be present uh, to to watch this. Definitely not like a date movie by any means. I would say uh, definitely not. It's it's a pretty somber piece, uh, but it is like very stripped down filmmaking, which is why I appreciate it a lot. Like you don't need you don't need a huge budget to do to make a great movie, and I think After Sun is a great encapsulation of that. It's profoundly sad. It's it's profoundly mood- moving. I mean, it is a beautiful film. Don't get me wrong. I don't know if I'm ever going to watch it again. Yeah, I, I'm not going to. Yeah, it's the type of film that upon rewatch, I'm sure would be just as good. I'll notice I'd notice more things, but it's sad and, and it's really moving in a way that, you know, I, I don't know if I'd be ready for in a while. I definitely have to watch a couple uh, lighthearted films after this to kind of center myself again. But that speaks to the, to its power in, in moving one's emotions. And that's really what a film's about is getting an emotional response. This succeeds on every level in that endeavor. So I think that's enough for after Sun. If we keep talking about it, I might cry. Um, but <laughs> it, I, I just want to say it was on Hulu for a little, but it's not anymore. Uh, so again, if you'd like to watch it, reach out to us, splash a cinema pod at gmail.com. We're still chugging. We're still checking those inboxes. Uh, we're getting lonely with all with with the lack of responses uh audience engagement but we'd love to hear from you so please reach out to us and let us know if you'd like to watch that one awesome yeah definitely do that we love engagement on the pod likewise feel free we now with our new our last two episodes and going forward we have kind of a question response on spotify where you can even straight from spotify respond to what you think about the pod what you'd like to see suggestions maybe episodes if you're passionate enough about film, like reach out to us and come on the pod. We love to have guests. I'll just give that little shout out before we move into our next piece. So I think we're good for After Sun. Our next piece is The Elephant Whispers, which is a nominee for this year's short doc category. After seeing it, I haven't seen the other ones yet. I would say it's perhaps the favorite, um, at least in my eyes. This is one thing Netflix did well. And it's actually not, not an American film. It is, it's a Tamil documentary and Tamil is, is the language that it's in. So get ready for subtitles. It's totally worth it. Coming out of Southern India, it's on an elephant reserve and it's two main characters are Boman and Belly, who are really the, they're the two actors credited on Letterboxd. And it's directed by Kartiki Gonzalez and it's written by Priscilla Gonzalez. So the writing and directing is not really what's so special about the documentary it's more the shots the cinematography the interview footage and it follows these two orphaned elephants ragu and man i'm forgetting the other one's name it's like uh it's something like dar dar or something i forget but 
Regardless, they're two the two elephants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it mostly follows Ragu, who is who's kind of the inspiration for the film. When the documentary started, these two caretakers, Bowman and Belly, and what's unique about Bowman and Belly is they're the only couple caretakers on this reserve. So, uh, Belly mentioned it. She's the only woman that's that's uh, given the privilege of taking care of these elephants, and it's essentially on a it's it's on a reserve um, that is like a just a nature reserve in general, but it's the largest elephant reserve in Southern India. And they take care of elephants that aren't ready to go back into the wild yet. So the story with Ragu, and I don't think this is a spoiler. It's kind of told from the, the moment the film starts is his mom was killed um, when she ran into like an electric fence in a village. And Ragu was orphaned from a young age, maggot infested. They didn't think he'd live due to the success of these caretakers. And, and you'll see this throughout this deeply emotional film. They raise this elephant kind of as their son. And throughout, they started just as caretakers, but they kind of learned to love each other along the way. So it's really kind of a family film featuring some beautiful some beautiful nature shots. It, it, it's, it's, it's another heartwarming story. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, My Octopus Teacher in a way. You know, the, the human connection to nature and to other animals. And the Indian elephant, if you weren't aware, is one of the – it's an endangered species. And their population keeps dwindling due to poaching, you know, ivory sellers, et cetera. And just to see the the humanity and the love that this movie had. Movie is a stretch. I mean, it's 40 minutes. It's a very easy watch, a uh, very beautiful watch as well. If you're just looking to, you know, lift your spirits up, give yourself a little hope, I would watch uh, – the elephant whispers because it's it's phenomenal i finished it earlier today like you said the the nature shots they do a lot of bird's eye shots as well as really close shots with the elephants and they're they're amazing creatures uh and you sort of see the bond that this couple gains with this elephant as the as the story moves on as the elephant matures uh because also southern india is one of the most dangerous places in the world uh in terms of you know predators and what these elephants could encounter out there so it's great that they're doing this uh and i definitely want to go to that area of the world it, it really intrigued me to see sort of the nature and everything there but it is very dangerous but yeah, just seeing this, I mean, I, I was jealous. I was like, dang, I would love mm -hmm. to just experience that. Yeah. These people are so down to earth. They're happy. Yeah, they're very nice. Yeah. It, it's a lot of hard work. It's clear. I mean, they're working around the clock to take care of themselves and the, and this elephant. And the other the other uh, animals on the preserve get some of the food and stuff. There's there's a lot of shots of monkeys that kind of provide comic relief yeah. in the documentary. L Langers is what they're called. Yeah. Langers. It's another endangered species, actually. So. It's good to see this uh, reserve like protecting those animals, but and make no mistake, elephants are dangerous as well. But it's mm -hmm. the it's insistent throughout the documentary that through this nurtured care and and the emphasis on not only providing Ragu with what he needs to survive, but also showing love because elephants are deeply emotional animals, perhaps more emotional than humans. Very intelligent animals. So by providing this elephant love, he becomes not really a dangerous part of their life. He, he amplifies it and, and allows them to experience the joy of kind of raising a child, um, mm -hmm. which provides, you know, moments of heartbreak throughout, but also really empowering, inspiring moments that just kind of leave you feeling whole at the end. It's a, it's a very hopeful piece. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you know who this is. Do you know who Forrest Galanti is? I don't. 
No. Okay. Well, he's this. He's sort of this. He's this wildlife biologist, and he's he specializes in finding what were extinct species. And watching this made me think about what he was saying uh, about how this this group out of I think it's Switzerland or something, some some you know Western European country is trying to recreate the woolly mammoth through gene splicing, which is like. It so the whole thing is like it won't be a woolly mammoth, but it'll look and act like a woolly mammoth, but it will never be a woolly mammoth. And they're using Indian elephants in the process, uh, so that's why it sort of you know sparked my thinking. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that? Like getting, I know this is a weird segue, but like getting extinct species back on the back on the earth. I, I think we should focus on the species we have right now. Yeah, right. That's that's my stance. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting concept. And I mean, it's cool. I love to see scientific advances. I don't really know what, what bringing back the woolly mammoth would do for the environment, um, introducing new species into already developed ecosystems is dangerous often. Um, I mean, of course, they probably wouldn't let it into the wild. But and, and, you know, by creating these animals, they're not perpetuating the species. They're, they're almost always like the liger, for example, is a great example, combining the the lion with the tiger that's a real animal but it's it's impotent i mean they can't produce their own offspring and and there's really no benefit to the environment so if there's anything to take away from this documentary it's that animals are are a wild resource that that is precious to to live alongside and learn from and there is a lot to be learned from from elephants for example and and it shows that in these documentaries they can only enhance someone's life if treated well and they want they want to interact with humans. Ragu is kind of seamlessly fits into this world, but it's only with the the proper time and dedication. I didn't realize the Indian government was spending so much time funding projects like these, but kudos to them because um, a lot of countries don't do that. So yeah, just a great a great sort of short documentary. If you're a big fan of nature documentaries, this one's phenomenal. Sort of a humanistic aspect to it as well. Uh, the human condition. So definitely give this a watch. My pick for the short subject. Granted, like yourself, I haven't watched any of the other nominees, uh, but I'm pulling for this one just because it was a pleasant watch and sort of an important, an important movie that I feel like needed to be made, uh, especially with everything that's going on with the planet. Yeah, I fell in love with it. Showed my mom. Showed my dad. Just it's perfect. All right. So that was uh, the Elephant Whispers and keeping it in the animal kingdom. We're going to move to the animated realm to Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Uh, So this is directed by Joel Crawford. And the plot reads, Puss in Boots discovers that his passion for adventure has taken its toll. He has burned through eight of his nine lives, leaving him with only one life left. Puss sets out on an epic journey to find the mythical last wish and restore his nine lives. It has Antonio Banderas uh, reprising his role as the titular feline uh, alongside Salma Hayek. And it has Florence Pugh, who plays Goldilocks, actually. Uh, John Mulaney is in it as well, among others. Uh, Pretty stacked cast for this one. Initial thoughts, like I went into this one not expecting a lot. I don't have any allegiance to the Puss in Boots canon or character for that matter. Sure, I get a chuckle out of it. But I really enjoyed this movie. I don't know about you, John. Like I, I had a great time with this. It was much more than I thought it would be. I thought the the switching of animation styles was effective and worked. And I like how animation is moving in that way. And again, like Antonio Banderas always shines uh, in this role. He's sort of built for it. Uh, and it was great to see uh, some great action scenes. What are your thoughts on the Last Wish, John? 
I came at it from from the exact opposite way that you came at it, Pete. Uh, you went into it with no expectations. I fell into the trap that I occasionally fall into of reading too many letterbox reviews. Ah, uh, don't do that. <laughs> in an excited fervor um, to go to the movies. So I went with my roommate, got tickets, saw it in theaters. Of course, it's a great theaters experience. It's a great animated movie. I left feeling great about it. I think it's a great film, but it's not the five star. I mean, some of the reviews I was reading were saying this is the next Spider-Verse or Puss in Boots yeah. into the multiverse. Some were saying like it made me deeply emotional. It made me cry. I didn't take any of those feelings away from it. I thought it was a solid sequel, just about the best that you can get from what is essentially the sixth movie in a franchise. I mean, it's still attached to the whole Shrek franchise. And I think it did kind of bring back the franchise a little bit. I know that after the success of Puss in Boots, both with critics and audiences, there's going to have to be another one made. That's normally how it goes. The first Puss in Boots film was not very good, but this really took liberties with animation. They did their time. They did their diligence. They decided to attach a solid storyline to it as well. So kudos to uh, DreamWorks Animation for this. Big kudos. They, they had great voice actors. Really everything you can do to make a solid animated film. And I think, I don't know if it is the favorite for this year's best animated. I would be surprised if it isn't. I haven't seen all the films in the category. It, it is a standout. It's a strong animated film. But it doesn't, I don't think it holds a candle to Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse. No, no, I don't think that's an apt comparison by any means. Uh, but Because like without Spider-Verse, this movie wouldn't exist just in terms of animation style and even story structure for that matter. Uh, there's a, a few parallels there. I do want to shout out uh, the wolf in this. I think that's a phenomenal villain. One of the scariest villains I've seen in an animated movie recently. And that's hard to make an animated villain scary. Uh, but you really feel for Puss in Boots and sort of his fear around this villain. Uh, and then you'll see throughout the movie, you know, there's numerous other villains introduced. Everyone's looking for this, you know, wishing star in a way to better themselves to some degree. But Puss like desperately needs this. Uh, so you sort of empathize with him as the story moves on. Uh, but yeah, just a good watch. Uh, I love the I love the action sequences. Uh, the, the opening scene was phenomenal, too. It opened with it opens with a bang, uh, which is great for an anime movie for me. Uh, I think it ran a little too long. And there isn't one side character who can get very annoying very quick. Uh, so I'll just say that. Not not Salma Hayek's character. Uh, I think she does a great job. I like that character a lot. But at times, it can sort of be a little too much. To your point earlier about best movie this year, I'm going to go with Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I don't know if you've seen that. Haven't seen it yet. We'll, we'll have to cover it, Pete. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I really enjoyed that one. And I don't know if it's the favorite per se, but it's my personal favorite from this year. Uh, granted, I haven't seen Marcel the Shell with shoes on either, but I don't really want to see that, if that makes sense. It just seems sort of boring. I don't know. You you can throw in two cents about it. But uh, no, I really enjoyed Puss in Boots The Last Wish. That's the crux of what I'm trying to say. Uh, went into it not expecting much. And I came out a little satisfied. You know, I gave it like three and a half stars, I think. Like, it's a good, well-made movie. Absolutely. But what nothing crazy special. About the, the other films, the two films you referenced, uh, Marcel, the Shell with Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and Del Toro's Pinocchio. Those are the two animated films, ironically, in the category I haven't seen yet. As I'm building to the Oscars, of course, I, I have this goal to watch them all before the ceremony. And of course, I want to get to those films as soon as possible. But after every 
Oscar nominated type film because a lot of them are great films. I have to kind of cleanse my palate with one or two like low budget comedies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I roll. So that way I can take more out of the good films and appreciate them more. But Puss in Boots, like to your point, there is a lot going on. That's one of the criticisms I have for the movie. I think there were too many side characters introduced. And that yeah. way you never really had your chance to fully explore some of these really interesting side characters but there were just too many so it was hard to develop them all uh, i i loved the wolf of course that's one of the best villains i've seen in recent memory another great villain i thought was Mulaney's jack horner provided yeah, some comic yeah. relief it was a good time there were there were great side characters it was just too much the the runtime was a little long but oh i mean it was beautiful animation i loved the story path that they took to kind of open up some of those those great chances to show different animation styles. Uh, I thought it was just really cool how they got into deep themes. A lot of animated movies don't do this. This really touched on kind of death and one's purpose. And should one be enjoying life versus trying to prolong their life more? Um, that's kind of the great human. Yeah. Great human experiment. Like, are we trying to live as long as possible? Or are we trying to maximize the time we have? And it's hard to balance both. And Puss comes to that realization. I mean, he's kind of this immortal figure in in this Shrek canon and just in the vernacular, but he is forced to confront his own mortality. And God, that's just, that's excellent cinema. That's excellent storytelling. Yeah. That's what makes a great movie because you can play with animation all you want, but if you don't have a solid story to build it on, uh, the movie's kind of screwed from the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that, the you know, themes of mortality, because I feel like the audience for this is around our age, maybe even a little older, for that matter. You know, people who grew up with Puss in Boots, like 2004, etc., 2000s. So I'm not surprised why they went in with those sort of mature themes uh, in a way. But like this isn't I wouldn't call this, you know, an animated movie you bring a five year old to. Like, I think the wolf itself would just scare them too much. And there would be too many mature themes to sort of be entertaining for someone like that. But for us, I mean, I had a great time with this one. Uh, I don't have that much to say, more to say about it. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Enjoyable, predictable to an extent, but but very enjoyable. Every animated movie is to some degree. To a degree. Um, yeah. Yeah. I gave it four stars. I have no complaints. Very happy with Universal for, mm -hmm. for taking... When you take risks and they pay off, it's a beautiful thing. And I really appreciate that. On that note, uh, I'm going to bring up the next movie. I think we're done talking about Puss in Boots, but it is a great film. The next one is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, which is nominated in the Best Adapted Screenplay category. Uh, writing was one of its strong points. Directed by Ryan Johnson. It's the second, it's kind of, it's the sequel to Knives Out. Um, and the plot reads, world-famous detective Benoit Blanc heads to Greece to peel back the layers of a mystery surrounding a tech billionaire and his eclectic crew of friends. And that eclectic crew of friends is played by Edward Norton, Dave Bautista, Janelle Monet, Kate Hudson, Catherine Hahn, Madeline Klein, Leslie Odom Jr., and Jessica Henwick. Uh, great cast, great writing, ultimately another case for me of getting too excited about a movie. I need to stop doing that. Yeah. 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 It's so hard to go into something with, with zero expectations. And I found that it gets harder and harder as I get more into film, because even like for this next year, I have this whole lineup of films that I'm expecting something out of. And I don't want to say I was let down by this, but I don't think it was 
what the first film was. I do think it took a step down. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Once again, perhaps same criticism I gave Puss in Boots. I think there's too many side characters to focus on, and it does distract from the mystery aspect of the film because this is ultimately a whodunit. But yeah, Glass Onion's a quality film, and I think it it has earned its place among the Oscar nominees. It's it's no Best Picture nominee, but it's so hard to make a movie that's not going to get some type of critical acclaim when you have that cast. Ryan Johnson has found his niche. I'm starting to slowly forgive him for The Last Jedi yeah. because of these Knives Out movies. Like Likewise, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for the next one, though. Yeah, I'll let you talk about it, Pete. Yeah, Ryan Johnson is, an, is someone who can attract talent like that, and he does that in Glass Onion. He came out with this show that's on Peacock, actually, called Poker Face. Uh, I've watched the first episode of it. It's pretty decent. Like Glass Onion, the writing is what stands out. Uh, Ryan Johnson is a phenomenal writer. Direction aside, you know he's he's a great writer, and I'm pretty sure he was a writer before he even directed things, like for a bunch of bunch of canon and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I I don't know how I feel about this one. Uh, I agree with you on that. It is not as good as Knives Out. I think Knives Out took just the right amount of turns. This one might have taken too many turns in a way. Uh, and also, I think that this one is pretty predictable. You can't have one of the actors who's in this be in the movie and then not expect them to, you know, be the culprit, if that makes sense. Like, it's it was bad casting for that matter. Granted, I love this actor, and I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, and like, even the advertising that I saw, like I was in New York for New Year's and I got off the subway and right as I'm going out, it's this actor in like a menacing look promoting the movie on a post on, you know, just a billboard. And I'm like, wow, like whoever's marketing this, like you're, you're bad at your job. Like you failed. Like, I don't need to see this movie. Granted, I had seen it. I had seen this ad after I'd watched the movie. So I understood it, but still like it's, it's pretty predictable in that respect. The movie is a little too woke too. I think Uh, it takes place in COVID and they sort of reference cancel culture and like Dave Bautista's characters, like this, this vlogger. And like, that's how he makes his money. It's like, I don't need to see the world I'm living in too much, you know? Like I, it was, it was a little scary in that regard. Uh, but I do want to shout out our boy Ethan Hawke. He has a cameo in this for like thirty seconds, and then he's out of the movie. Really weird, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. You know, it was a good watch. I watched it with my mom. Uh, she enjoyed it. I wasn't expecting too much. I'm gonna be real. Uh, there was a lot of Netflix push for this, and they certainly had their influence on the filmmaking process. But uh, Benoit Blanc, as always, is phenomenal. Daniel Craig shines. I think Ed Norton shines as well. He's great in pretty much everything he does. Uh, and good to see Kate Hudson back on the screen. Uh, I'm a big fan of her, and her character is sort of the a lot of the comedic relief in this because she is so you know airheaded in a way. But uh, I do want to shout out Stephen Sondheim has an appearance in this movie for like a split second, and I believe it's his last film credit, uh, which is scary because I wish it would have been on like West Side Story or like a real movie. Not something I would not expect him to see him in as a musical theater fan. Sort of makes me mad. Aside from that, I had a great time with Glass Onion. I thought it was good. Uh, I like Janelle Monae a lot. I think she's a great actress. And you know me, always a big fan of Leslie Odom Jr. He's starting to do a lot more advanced stuff uh, working out of the theater, theatrical world. So, yeah. It had all the right elements to break out as a, as a great film. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting. I don't I don't know if I buy this, but... A lot of a lot of uh, what was come what came out after the film was that it was meant to be interpreted as 
as irony and we were meant to see that all these characters were exaggerations of sort of real life personalities in our culture like there's a little bit of kind of joe rogan in there and a little bit of some politicians that are you know popular in the mainstream and and Mm -hmm. each of these characters though kind of pushed it beyond what i would expect would actually be their behavior from that type of person and so i don't know i if if i was going to make a sequel to a great mystery i would just try to make another great mystery i wouldn't make some kind of funny situational character portrait and remove the mystery aspect from it because that's what everyone wanted to see from Glass Onion. That's what Knives Out gave us was a kind of a great, well-rounded mystery. This was not necessarily as much of a mystery as much as a good time. And and yeah, it's a good time. It's it's fine. I mean, love love the cast. I think they all provide moments of comedic relief. Specifically, Kate Hudson, as you mentioned. But all these all these characters combined with the clear twists and and predictable plot elements of the film that are supposed to be ironic of real mysteries like it was making fun of real mysteries while also making fun of society it tried to do too much break it down make it simple and maybe maybe that's that's the writing maybe that's the directing maybe it's just what they intended to do i think maybe i read into it wrong when i went in i i expected more of a mystery than than a good time and i don't know in that way i i think it's I'm allowed to criticize it, but yeah, great time. I'm I'm not going to knock it. It's definitely an above average film. And mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke's little cameo was probably my favorite part as well. <laughs> just so random. Like it just came out of nowhere. It's just like, put this huge actor in this bit role, but now, nah, yeah, focused a little too much on like COVID and stuff. And now nah, just like various holdbacks of various characters. And then it harps back on them. It's not very chronological. This movie which is part of the part of the fallback. But I mean, Knives Out wasn't either, but it was a way more structured. Like Knives Out, I feel like the story was much more concrete than the story in this one. And there is a point in this movie where something happens to a character who you thought was a character and then like a new character is introduced. And that's where I sort of was like, ah, oh, like I, I don't like this. I don't like this aspect of this movie. If it hadn't had that one aspect probably would have gotten another half star for me. Uh, But I felt at times this one was getting milked out a little into the, you know, trying to attract audiences. So, yeah, I know what you're saying, Pete. And I think there was probably two or three moments in the film where I was like, all right, this is one twist too far. And that's fine if that happens once or twice, but it happened like three or four times. And as, as soon as you get that first, this is one twist too far feeling it, it becomes almost sort of a comedy. And it felt too comedic for for what it was covering. I, I think it's interesting. Um, I noticed like just in the past couple of years, and especially with uh, this being nominated alongside uh, a recent film, Triangle of Sadness, there's a lot more emphasis in our culture now on creating portraits of the obscenely wealthy and how they interact and how their lives aren't perfect. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's born from COVID, but I think it's interesting. I see parallels between this Triangle of Sadness white lotus it's becoming a lot a lot more of a theme in movies even yeah even the menu uh we haven't covered it but that's very much what the menu focuses on too sort of subverting that whole culture and way of acting so yeah i don't have anything else to say about glass onion neither do i i enjoyed it uh it's on netflix if you'd like to give it a watch netflix original uh so like the production value is great takes place on this island in this mansion uh, sort of idyllic in that sense. But once you get into it, there's some twists that happen and it 
it's it's entertaining. I'll put it at that. It's entertaining. Didn't fully enjoy it, but I I I, I could watch it again. I'll say so. All right. So moving on, our next film is 2022's Elvis. Uh, so this is a highly anticipated movie from Baz Luhrmann which plot reads the life story of Elvis Presley as seen through the complicated relationship with his enigmatic manager, Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> like that's, that's my, that, that's my Tom Hanks impersonation in this movie. Uh, he puts on sort of this Eastern European accent. Tom Parker himself is just a weird character like in real life too. Uh, but anyways, regardless, the movie stars Austin Butler, who is getting a lot of Oscar acclaim would not be surprised if he won it. Uh, him and Fraser are sort of the two two leads going into the category, as well as Tom Hanks. And I liked Kelvin Harrison Jr. as B.B. King a lot. Uh, I like him in pretty much everything he does. Uh, so it was cool seeing him in this very minor character. Like I mentioned, it sort of focuses on the relationship between Elvis and Colonel Tom Parker. Few outside characters introduced just because it is such a long run time. This is at two hours, 40 minutes. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a Boz Lerman movie. At, at its bare bones. Uh, and you sort of know what you're going to get with a Bosler movie. You're going to get sleek editing, obsession with putting hip hop music into old movies and, you know, just massive set pieces. Uh, and that's what Elvis provides. This movie definitely took a long time to make. Uh, I'm sure of it. Austin Butler still has his accent in real life for some reason, uh, sort of taking the method acting a little too far, but he's phenomenal in this. Again, that's an actor who is on the up and up now. Not This was his first sort of big, big role. I think it's his only lead for that matter at this capacity of filmmaking. But I, it was fine. Like, granted, I didn't live through Elvis. John didn't live through Elvis. We don't have any allegiance to Elvis. Uh, so it, it failed to strike a chord in that respect with me. I, hope, I think with you, John, as well. I don't want to speak for you, but I, I don't think it held as much weight as it did for some people. And Tom Hanks's accent is just laughable. I don't know why they didn't get, you know, Christoph Waltz, someone who can do like, you know, in like a, a German accent, if you want to even call it that. But it's just funny. I love how Tom Hanks is just playing old dudes now. I love it. Uh, I'm here for it. And that's what he does in Elvis. Austin Butler did do all of his singing in this as well. So that's important to note for the Academy Awards. Uh, but I don't know. It was fine. It was way too long, but it was so flashy that it's sort of just like I sort of forgot about it in a way because that's not what, what attracts me in film. But what about you, John? Oh, man. Yeah, I, I felt like at one point um, seeing Tom Hanks play Colonel Tom Parker, I felt like he watched the Disaster Artist adaptation, <laughs> of the, kind of making fun of the room. And he's like, oh, I need to find some some real life character that's just as wacky as Tommy Uzo because because Colonel Tom Parker is an interesting character portrait and I need to uh, pull out my inner James Franco and and just try to make it funny uh, <laughs> it was weird it didn't necessarily work with the film a lot of things didn't work with the film the hip-hop music great example that's something I immediately noticed um, you wait like, nothing but a dog <laughs> <laughs> like, like Cardi B and stuff like over like montages of the 1950s doesn't work um, you know with Baz Luhrmann like he's cool but it was over stylized for sure oh yeah all of his movies are though like every, all of his movies you know what you're gonna get going into a Baz Luhrmann food. and like this was no exception yeah to everyone's credit though they played the formula they played everybody it worked I mean Elvis made its money it got eight Oscar nominations, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Editing, 
best cinematography, best production design, best costumes, best sound, and best makeup and hairstyling. It deserves some of those nominations, but man, they really played this formula well that that we've seen in recent award show uh, adaptations is like, I'm getting reminded of Bohemian Rhapsody, the Judy Garland biopic. Like every year now, it feels like we have some super stylized biopic for for disillusioned musician or something. Yeah, every year it comes out. Yeah, and it and it plays on the voters' old old love for these musicians, <laughs> and, and and it milks it. And and I don't really want to focus too much on the negatives because in its 160-minute runtime, I could get into a lot of stuff that I saw wrong with the film. What I think it achieved, maybe it didn't expect to achieve, but what it overwhelmingly, um, on a positive note, achieved was Austin Butler's performance. He really sold himself as Elvis. He painted a complex portrait of a star. Many people just think uh, as the king of rock and roll that maybe he... That Elvis is a controversial figure for a lot of reasons, but but Austin Butler shows that he's human. And on top of that, he really bought into the performance aspect of it and showed Elvis's true capacity as a star for just putting out show after show, even at the expense of his health, which becomes the theme of the, the film through about the second half. But Austin Butler played it so perfectly. Personally, I would love it if you won Best Actor. I think that it does deserve that Oscar. And I think the reason we're talking about it is because of Austin Butler. I don't know if without Austin Butler's performance, if it even gets all those other nominations. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so either. Yeah. I, I loved, yeah, loved his performance. I was drawn to him and, and I can't wait to see what he does in the future. Uh, if he can ditch the Elvis accent uh-huh. <laughs> and, do, <laughs> and do some other roles. Good for him though. He, he really shone and yeah, perhaps he, he wasn't the one that was supposed to shine. It was supposed to be Tom Hanks. Focusing on the Colonel was, was the big downside of the film. Yeah. I don't think like if it was, you know, if it was three hours of just Austin Butler with a few side characters introduced that, you know, maybe influenced him that I, that I would have preferred that movie so much more, but this really paints Colonel Tom Parker as the villain per se. And it's told through Hanks's perspective, which is skewed at times to his wants and desires. But that aside, I mean, Austin Butler captures every minute tendency that Elvis had. If you watch side by side clips, they're very similar. Uh, So just props to him for getting so dedicated and involved with the role to do diligence to this to this figure who is uh, misunderstood by a lot of people. So and technically, I mean, technical aspect wise, the film was was well done. Love the makeup, love the costuming, didn't really understand the music choices, didn't understand some of the editing, didn't understand some of the cinematography. But I'm going to take it for what it is. It was highly enjoyable. Definitely some of the older audience probably had a field day with it, reminiscing back to the days of Elvis. He is one of the great cultural icons in our in our country's history, like it or not. And this is this is really the first big film that that taps into that. So I'm glad we got a character portrait. I felt like I learned a lot, <laughs> largely though Austin Butler. That that's my review of this film was I literally just wrote Austin Butler. Because I don't want to, yeah, I don't yeah. want to dig into the weeds. I, I don't want to, I don't want to say he's going to be a unanimous best picture winner because a lot of, I mean, best actor winner because a lot of people are pulling for Fraser, but I would not be surprised if he wins by a good margin. And if you could bet on the Oscars, I'm hammering five units on that. So uh, it's exciting to see Austin Butler and to see what he's going to do next. Granted, he stops talking like this in interviews or. 
being all laid back and stuff. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, hopefully he ditches that. But big fan of Austin Butler at the moment. So And he has great, great style, like has defined Ben's style in like the past year through like GQ articles and stuff I've been following. So that aside, great actor though. So, so pizza Stan. So our last film that we're going to cover a great film this year, really took what the first one did and ran with it. I think pretty universally beloved is avatar, the way of water directed by James Cameron and his first film since like what, 2009, the first avatar was the last film he directed. I think. Yeah. Another super long runtime, but worth it. The plot reads, Return to Pandora. Set more than a decade after the events of the first film, learn the story of the Soli family, Jake, Neytiri, and their kids. The trouble that follows them, the lengths they go to keep each other safe, the battles they fight to stay alive, and the tragedies they endure. Written by Cameron, Shane Salerno, Rick, Rick Jaffa, Amanda Silver, and Josh Friedman. They had a team, I guess, on this one. And it stars Sam Worthington as Jake Soley, Zoe Saldana reprises her role as Neytiri, Sigourney Weaver takes a turn as Kiri, Stephen Lang as the Colonel, Kate Winslet, Joel David Moore, and Cliff Curtis, among others. Yeah, you should get into it, Pete, because I have a lot of thoughts, but I want to save some of them. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm going to do a spoiler-free review here. Uh, at least I'm going to try to. Uh, so I saw this in 2D when it first came out. And then I went back, had to see it in IMAX. And I do have to say, see this in IMAX if, if you get the chance. Or 3D for that matter, even. Like, it's meant to be seen in that medium. Uh, so definitely do it. James Cameron, I love him. Like, I, I love what he's doing with Avatar. I'm excited for the next installments. And this even, I was excited, I'll say. And then this even propelled that excitement even more. Just like, it's the first one, but even better. That's what I'll say. Granted, I did like the first one more just because it was more shock value. But in terms of filmmaking, this is leagues above the first one, uh, just with the technology that's come out in the past few years. I mean, he was putting his actors in mocap underwater to make it seem that authentic. And it seems very authentic in the movie. Uh, The features on the character's face, the whole water tribe is really cool. uh, And sort of you get an anthropological view of the Navi and how they act in various biomes for that matter. Uh, And it's sort of, it's really cool to see an expansive Pandora and sort of see the evolution from the last movie. It pieces everything together too. Like Cameron doesn't take any shortcuts in the storytelling in this by any means, uh, which I really appreciated. And it's a five-star film for me, not in my top five for the year. I will say that just because I'm not the biggest, you know, sci-fi avatar head out there. Uh, but I was excited to see this and my excitement was met. Uh, this is an example of going into something with huge expectations and it fulfilling that and even some. Uh, and that's how I felt with Way of Water. What about you, John? Loved it. And I'm going to start with probably where everyone starts. Every film lover starts when they think about Avatar, The Way of Water. James Cameron. It's his baby. It's clear he, he had the patience and dedication to put out a film. That although for sure it would have made its money anyway, he decided to really give it the justice it deserved and keep this universe afloat. And that's through the technology he used in in the filmmaking process. He originally was waiting for some new technology to come out, some new toys that he could play with. And then he got impatient. So he developed his own, developed his own new filming techniques underwater and really revolutionized a lot of modern cinema in in a cool way. I think it seemed throughout like 
James Cameron had his hand in it and the joy was evident through the movie, his joy in the filmmaking process, the actor's joy in participating. Uh, that was all palpable with the characters, with the writing, with the shots. I love that he uh, asked The Weeknd to do the closing credits song. I thought it fit perfectly. <laughs> yeah. It was great. Um, it reminded me of when Nolan used Travis Scott to do the closing cr- closing credits song on Tenet a little bit. I have so many highlights. I loved the story from beginning to end. It starts with birth and ends with death and kind of parallels what this universe, what these people are going through in a, in a beautiful way. So if, if one has the patience and the understanding to watch this and really appreciate it, you can see themes from the beginning to the end connecting three hours later. And a lot of stuff happens in between. There's a lot of scenes. One criticism could be that there's too much, but all I want is more. So mm. I think the three hour runtime was, was well worth it. I, I saw it twice. Um, I really got the spiritual connection that these characters feel with the universe. The the climax was was perfect. I love the whales. They are to Cameron, maybe what the worms are to Denis in Dune. <laughs> he he really smashed this one out of the park. And and I think within a developing franchise as a sequel, it's perfection. Yeah. Definitely did his due diligence, did its due diligence to not only the fan base, but just the public in general. Uh, you know, the first avatar focuses on you know, conserving the forest and the land. And this one's talking about the sea. And it's pretty overt in that saying through the human characters in this. The one guy, for some reason, is like Australian and he tries to provide some comedic relief, not to much avail. To your point, though, about sort of doing too much is a big criticism. That was the one criticism, not too much, but more there. I found that there was one unnecessary character in this who didn't have to be there. And I think if they weren't in it, it wouldn't be a better film per se, but it would be more enjoyable for me. And that character is Took. I'm going to go out and say it. I'm very anti-Took. That's Jake and Natiri's youngest, uh, for those of you who haven't watched it. I just think her presence in the movie really doesn't need to be there. She gets the whole family into binds at times, and I think that's one of her sol- one of her reasons for being in the movie. Uh, but like obviously the kids, I think Sigourney Weaver's daughter... And the two boys are integral to the plot. And I can't wait to see what those three characters do in the future installments. Uh, but I just think Tuke as a character just wasn't quite there. And then the last one I have to say is, I wish they showed more of the Water Tribe. We were introduced to them sort of a third of the way through the movie, I'll say. And then they sort of fizzle out as the plot develops and as Stephen Lang's character makes his advances. And I wish that, you know, we, we learn more about them, their stories, how they got brought to that island, some more development from them, just because, you know, we know we know everything about the Sullys and Natiri and Jake and stuff. And it even walks you through their years since the first since the first movie. Uh, but I wish we got a little more of that Water Tribe, a little more Kate Winslet action would have been cool. Uh, but nonetheless, I think I saw enough of them to be satisfied. Like this isn't a knock on the movie by any means, uh, but I just wish I had seen more of the Water Tribe. So, I loved the fact that they brought back Sigourney Weaver. They found a creative way to keep her in the universe. Yeah, because who doesn't love Sigourney Weaver, especially in within the sci-fi realm? She's one of the greatest sci-fi actresses of all time. I do think it was kind of weird she was voicing like a child. It it worked like it it worked though like it 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 I mean yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I'd be hearing this, this what is supposed to be a child speaking, and I, I was hearing like a 60-year-old like woman. Old boy. Yeah, I yeah, know. That's fair. Yeah. So in that sense, it was kind of weird, but 
I would have rather had that than introducing some new character, I guess. Mm-hmm. I thought on your, on your point about unnecessary characters, Jermaine Clement, who I love, had had what, what was going to be such a promising character in this film. And they only used him for like sparse moments of comedic relief. I really didn't think they did his character justice because they introduced him as potentially a super rich character in the franchise. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just had to look up who that. I just had to look up who that was. But okay, yeah, yeah, that was an underutilized character because he was he was different from the other humans in a way. And I wish they focused more on him and his his attempts to conserve Pandora. But yeah, he was like in the first film when you have Weaver and the other scientists that start this avatar program, but learn to develop kind of this love for the natural world and want to save it. He was that version in this film, but instead of getting the full maybe hour of screen time or, you know, piecemeal amounts of screen time to amount to an hour that, that the scientists in the first film got where they became integral characters, his character didn't get that. Um, He was more of a side piece and he is a great actor. And I've, seen some of his independent stuff and I love it and I would have liked to see more of him likewise my biggest criticism but perhaps it's a positive I'm not sure yet was the reintroduction reintroduction of the colonel as the primary antagonist Mm -hmm. and his relationship with spider who's kind of like the child version of Tarzan that relationship (laughs) is has the potential to be kind of the axis of the future of avatar and I could see whatever the colonel thinks or decides or however they develop that storyline could either be a huge positive for the Navi or a huge negative for the Navi in their development to reclaim their world. So it it almost felt a little bit, it it kind of felt lazy. And I don't want to say that as a criticism to camera, because perhaps he has this master plan that I'm not seeing yet, but it, it felt like a microscopic version of the reintroduction of Palpatine in star Wars nine, where they're like, all right, we can't write our own new creative villain. So we need to bring back an old villain that worked and find a, a way to like reanimate them. And I, I, I don't know. I felt like it was a little lazy. But the, the other thing, sorry, I don't mean to jump criticisms on this. I thought it was a no, four and definitely. a half star movie. But the other thing that was weird was uh, the whale brain fluid, which is now the valuable resource they're trying to get, <laughs> yeah, that was, was worth funny. like 10 million for a little capsule of it. Like the hunting yeah. process alone cost way more than $10 million and they wasted that amount in ammunition alone. So there's no way, there's no way that that would be worth the quadrillions of dollars it would have taken the humans to get to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I love how, yeah. Yeah. No, just, you know, how the first one, it's like, oh, this block of unobtainium is like $50,000 million. And they're like, yeah. And then in this one, they're just like, yeah, this brain fluid stops aging. It'll run you 10 million a capsule. It's like so much less than unobtainium. <laughs> they're just like looking for the next thing, but it's just like so pointless. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. Thinking back, I did put it at four and a half stars on Letterboxd because of, you know, that as well as the toque and the prior mentioned things I said. Uh, but yeah, that part was just funny. Like, I just laughed when they were like, yeah, this is why we kill him. I'm just like, Bruh. <laughs> like what? Like, I mean, it's it's all a great, it's it's a great little plot line until they say this stuff right here, this, this stuff, like <laughs> stuff that we yeah. just spent hours getting and have this whole cool <laughs> process down to get $10 million. And I'm like, oh my God, like your ship. <laughs> To run for a day cost $30 million at least, you know? Um, Like this aircraft carrier you have essentially would cost like billions of dollars to run a year. And and okay, this stuff that stops aging, like it stops aging. Pretty powerful thing. Uh, Someone would only be willing to pay $10 million for that. Something tells me you could command like 
billion value for that, or like <laughs> yeah. $10 million for a little capsule of that. Like $10 million? You know how many people can afford $10 million? Like a lot, a lot of people. And there weren't that many whales, so the math doesn't yeah. add up to me. Yeah, I think Tom Brady got his hands on that, though, clearly. Uh, oh, any NFL player with a decent contract <laughs> would get their hands on it. <laughs> uh, but do you have anything else to say? Uh, I did appreciate the weekend song in the end also. I was not expecting that. Pleasantly surprised. So It's on my playlist now. I love it. Yeah. I, I love the film. I mean, I really did. Um, yeah. And only because of its long runtime and, and the liberties they took, which are overwhelmingly more positive than negative, did it open itself up to a little bit of criticism? And I'm sure a filmmaker like Cameron thrives on that and he's going to prove us all wrong. I don't even know what he can prove wrong. Like a lot of people were saying like in their reviews, like Cameron proved everybody wrong. Like it's James Cameron. What? Cameron, like, like yeah. I only expect greatness from him. Like you're, Yeah, you're talking to the dude who made Alien and Titanic, right? Like he's made crazy sci-fi and Titanic. Like he, he's fine. Like... The only way he could prove like a critic wrong would be to make a terrible movie. Yeah, right. I'm not, no one's doubting this guy at this point. It's James Cameron, you know? But yeah, that's, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Uh, just really enjoyed it. Definitely going to see it in theaters again at some point down the line. It's meant to be seen in theaters also. Uh, so if you do live in a place where this is still in theaters, go immediately uh it's definitely worth the three three hours and change runtime just the tech is just phenomenal all the all the underwater creatures that are there like it's just so sick like the world of the pandora is just so dope cameron has clearly thought about this world it's so well crafted and just enjoyable at the end of the day so pandora is thriving can't wait to see what they have next um but yeah so that brings us to a conclusion of the six films we covered in this episode, please check them out. Um, if you're interested in, in seeing kind of a portrait of this past year, the six films we just talked about encapsulate different parts of what made last year special in cinema and what deserves to be recognized next month at the Academy Awards. We're going to have at least one or two more episodes where we get into some of the more of the heavyweights. Yeah. There's definitely some, some films we didn't mention that got nominations that, I want to talk about, including, you know, best picture favorite, everything ever mm -hmm. once tar, the whale, there's some good the stuff. Fablemans. There. There's, there's a lot we need to talk about. So, but yeah, yeah please check those out. I, I enjoyed doing this episode with UPL. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we're ending now though. Cause my computer's about to die. So Same. thank you guys as always for listening. And we really appreciate, especially our parents out there. Uh, we appreciate all you guys. Please reach out to us if you want to cover. We, we anything see you. Else. We see you. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, all right. So signing off. I'm Pete. I'm John. Thanks for listening. Nice. Eighty degrees. Oh shit! That's sick. Hell yeah. <laughs>